Would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 19? Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40 will be the subject of our, my reading this morning. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Let's pray. O Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Many of us are aware of the news uh, that that there is uh, a... A jubilee celebration, a platinum jubilee celebration, 70th year of reigning for Queen Elizabeth uh, over in London or, or over throughout Great Britain. Uh, there is pageantry, there is a concert, there is a party, there is a birthday parade, there, which is called the Trooping of the Color. Uh, there's a kazoo derby, I don't know what that is. There's a service of thanksgiving. Uh, whereby the archbishop is there as well. Uh, There is a singing of God Save the Queen. Uh, I hope none of us would sing that song, but but here we are in a different nation. Uh, But but nonetheless, we have seen uh, pageantry and pomp and circumstance in all of its beauty as in an admirable way as they celebrate the 70th year of Queen Elizabeth's reign. It's an extraordinary thing, and we have seen something of what it what it's like. Uh, soon, in a few years, uh, maybe sooner than we think, we'll see a king, uh, a king's coronation. Uh, at some point, the prince will become the king, and all things pertaining to the the th- the, the throne in in Great Britain are resplendent. Uh, they're they're quite lovely. Uh, the whole country comes to celebrate. It's it's an extraordinary affair, and, and so we've seen these things. We've beheld these things. We've uh, perhaps have followed along and and observed on television some of these events. But here this morning in the text, in verses 28 through 40, we see the coronation 
of a king of an extraordinary nature, one who is of a much higher standing before God uh, than Queen Elizabeth. Well, let's 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 delve into this story this morning. But uh, I want to encourage you to consider that as we take up this text, in, in a way, we ought to take off our proverbial shoes. For, for what we what we see and where we walk in this passage is something of holy ground for believers. There is the presence of Almighty God in flesh, and the the surrounding crowds are recognizing and proclaiming that here is the King of Kings, here is God of Gods, King of Kings. And he is coronated as such, recognized as such, proclaimed to be, and recognized before heaven itself. The king of kings is there on a donkey, on a young colt, and he is to be worshipped. This is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and it's not his first entry into Jerusalem. Uh, according to, if we were to look up the times when Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, whether in Matthew and Mark and Luke and, and John, this is his at least third time ascending into uh, the city of Jerusalem, ascending even the Temple Mount itself. There are parallel accounts of this particular triumphal entry in Matthew 21, in John chapter 12, in Mark chapter 11. This is the last week of Christ's life. This is most likely Sunday, as we would know it, prior to Passover. Passover will be Friday. It will be in five days, but Sunday Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem. Mary has only recently anointed him. She has prepared him for burial. Matthew records this event. Uh, They are in Simon the leper's house, and uh, nard has been poured out upon his head and upon his feet. Judas has complained about the expense, and Jesus' response is that she is preparing me for burial. He is very much conscious of his role and of the days and of the events that are before him. No jubilee uh, celebration, no pageantry, no birthday parade, no trooping of the color or kazoo derby. There is only a preparation for himself as he methodically marches footstep by footstep, day by day, into the events that will culminate in his death. He is a king of kings who has come to die. Mary is conscious of Jesus' death and she has saved that, that, that alabaster jar filled with nard for that day. She understood more than his disciples did. She understood. She was conscious of the Savior's death. She had made the connection of the necessity of the death of Jesus. She It was her brother who had been healed and lifted from the grave, called forth from the grave. And the crowds had had seen that miracle. They were aware of it. They are there worshiping and acknowledging who he is because of their observed enjoyment, as it were, of 
what Jesus has brought about by way of miracle. He has raised a dead man from the grave. Surely this is God's full attestation that this this is the Messiah. This is the one sent to save God's people. There are a great many people in Jerusalem. There is a vast number of crowds. Uh, Barclay, one of the uh, Old Testament um, uh, uh, commentarians, estimates that there are two and a half million people there. And it's quite likely, 30 years later, a Roman governor would say that 250,000 lambs were slaughtered in Jerusalem at Passover that year. Other estimates of the number of people there are 155,000 plus. But within rabbinical tradition, within rabbinical teaching, within Passover regulations, there's a required minimum of 10 people in relationship to one Passover lamb that is offered. So for 10 people there is to be, or for every lamb there are to be 10 people represented. That would be two and a half million if there were 250,000 lambs offered in that year. Either way, there is a vast crowd of people. Tens upon thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people. So from the east, very conscious of the Passover coming, very conscious of the preparation for Passover, the vast numbers of crowds, of people there, of bleeding animals from the east, from Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus walks on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. He's rounding the south side of the city, passing Bethphage before entering Jerusalem. This is the day that we would celebrate Palm Sunday, the day traditionally five days before Good Friday, the day of the Savior's death, seven days prior to Easter Sunday. And Jesus is entering into the city. Two, two disciples are sent into Bethphage to obtain an unwritten donkey colt. There's speculation about the owner's permission, and they are told, they're told to say the, the master has need of it. The Lord has need of it. And so they do when they are questioned. And immediately this young colt is given. Mark, in his account, doesn't share the details of this, but, but Luke does. Jesus is in this unmarked, untrained, unbroken young colt of a donkey. He is sitting upon it. It is in full fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling precisely, perfectly, every Old Testament text, perfectly fulfilling all that was lifted up as a signpost throughout the Old Testament, replete with such signposts. Jesus is fulfilling them perfectly. In Numbers chapter 19, verse 2, in Deuteronomy 21, 3, in 1 Samuel 6, 7, all relevant animals placed into sacred use must not have had any kind of an ordinary use. 
And so Jesus, in that tradition, in light of those texts, in full light of Zechariah 9.9, comes sitting on the back of a young colt, the foal of a donkey. Every Davidic king rode on an unbroken donkey as a royal act, which would identify Jesus as a Davidic king. Again, in fulfillment of every Old Testament text, for every person who reads the Old Testament and cannot see that Jesus is perfectly fulfilled as Christ, as the Messiah, every Old Testament promise, they are blind and unwilling to see. There is a full recognition of who Jesus is, specifically of his kingship. Psalm 118, verse 26 and following says this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. This is a refrain that is used by these disciples all around Jesus. They are proclaiming this. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His love endures forever. This crowd is saying, this is the Messiah of God. This is the fulfillment of every Old Testament promise. This is God's provision of love for all who would believe. This is the King. This is the King of Kings. Lord of Lords. Branches are laid as well as clothing. There is reverence here in this act. An act of surrendering personal possessions. Livelihood to and for the King. Saying, it's all yours. Let me lay it before you. Take my coat. Here are these these branches that are to be laid out before you as reverence for you as King. Oh, Christians, do we own Christ as King? Do we lay ourselves out before Him and say, Lord, all that I am and all that I have is Yours. All of it is from You. In reverence, I give it to You. In reverence, Lord, take and use it for Your glory. There are antiphonal exchanges of praise both in front and from behind. Hosanna! which Save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The whole crowd is praising God with a joyful noise, with a loud voice. They have seen all these miracles. They are very conscious of this fact. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There's an indication in the triumphal entry that Jesus is going to lay down his own life. He's going to die voluntarily at the hand of the Jewish leaders who had originally intended to kill him according to their own time time construct and, and in a less conspicuous way in a time that was more uh, more advantageous to themselves but Jesus is sovereignly directing these events according to his own timetable he will die at Passover as the Lamb of God 
He would not let them take their, his life at any other time. He will die at precisely the right time that he might fulfill perfectly the Old Testament promise that he would be in the grave subject to death for three days, parts of three days. That when he died, he would not have any bones broken. That he would die by means of crucifixion. That he would be lifted up. Everything about Jesus fulfills Old Testament promises. Everything about Jesus screams the fact this is the Messiah. There is no other. There is a sour note in the midst of all of this. Some of the Pharisees in verse 20, uh, 39, they're in the crowd and they hear all of this. They are very conscious of this fact. What the disciples and what the people all around Jesus, disciples of Jesus, more than just the apostles, they're all proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You are not God. You are not the Messiah. You are not the Son of God. You are not the, the looked for one. What they are saying of you can only be true of God. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these became silent, the stones will cry out. Isn't it extraordinary the way in which if, if all humanity fails to acknowledge Jesus Christ as God, the very trees themselves will bow down in humble recognition of their creator. The, the stones of the earth will cry out. We're told in language in, in the Old Testament that the stars will sing of the glory of God and speak of the glory of the eternal Son of God. The inanimate creation will become animate and and cry out and praise God if we would refuse to do so. God will always have a praising creation. God will always, the, 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 the glory of Jesus Christ so calls for praise that the very inanimate things of our earth will praise Him in the last great day. Jesus will not deny their praise, nor their recognition of him as God and as the Messiah. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem not as a God of war, not according to their expectations, but he is entering as the Prince of Peace. He has come that he might bring peace with God, between God and sinners. He has come to save sinners. We have heard a lot of, and I, I've prayed about a few things in the pastoral prayer at an earlier point, and we've heard a lot of talking heads on television and on the news talking about what, what are the fundamental societal problems that affect our nation to such a degree that we kill one another, we take early human life, we embrace wickedness and ungodliness in every form, and we've lost our moral compass. And people talk about, why? Why? The only answer is, all of us are sin sinners. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Why does man act the way that he does? Because of sin. Because he is a sinner. 
Why is our world so corrupt? Because of sin. Because mankind sins and is fundamentally, essentially, a sinner. Why do we take life? Why do we embrace every aberrant form of sin? Because we are sinners. We have a nature that is sinful. We have a sin nature that corrupts every thought, every action, even the best of us all, even the most moral of all of us, even the most holy of all believers, sins against their Creator daily in word and in deed. We are hateful, we are hurtful, we are murderous, we are prideful, we lift ourselves up and exalt ourselves, even the most holy of God's saints. We are sinners. And nothing will change the direction of our country, nothing will change the direction of our hearts, short of falling on our knees before God in full recognition of God our Savior, crying out for mercy and for salvation, if God is not willing to bring renewal and and reformation again and revival in the midst of our country, there will be no change. There will only be a continuing embrace and a decline of humanity and an embrace of sin. The only thing that will change our nation and will change a human heart is the Messiah of God, the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God coming in to renew and regenerate the wicked heart and to renew the inner person after the will of God, making us willing to follow His law and embrace holiness and deny ourselves and our sins. And this is what you and I should be praying for continually. Oh God, come and revive this nation. Oh God, come and renew this nation in your word. Oh God, come and save to the uttermost. Turn the eyes of wicked sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ and change them, oh God. Change them in their inner person. Regenerate their heart and renew them after your will. The last thing we should be doing is praying for a particular person to be elected to any position in our country. The first and foremost thing that we should be doing is asking God that Christ Jesus might be exalted. That the King of Kings would reign and rule. That he would conquer every unbelieving heart. That he would renew after his own will every man, woman, and child in this earth such that we would embrace life and truth God, His Word. What does this passage teach us about Jesus Christ, the Messiah? A few things in brief. It teaches us that He is sovereign God. He is sovereign God. I don't know about you, but I can barely direct myself through traffic. I can barely get where I need to go. I need Google every step of the way. Google Maps. I am, I am a committed. I am a. Uh, I am. I am. I am. I'm. I'm. I'm addicted. 
I used to read a map and I could read my maps and find my way anywhere and everywhere I needed to go. And, and I, I'm a good map reader. I, I, I could still return to it, but I don't want to because it's so much easier to merely enter 192 Google Avenue and, and here it comes. And, and it'll take me hours and hours away from the home. Sometimes it will take me in ways I don't like, but generally speaking, it will take me where I want to go. But I can't do any of that. I can barely entertain the, I can barely move the circumstances in my home life toward my, the, the ultimate goals that Christine and I in, 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 in mutual communion together decide are, are, are the ways in which we want to rule, well, the ways in which we want to lead our home. Every day, even though I set certain plans for that day, there are always things that will take me in different directions. Always. Every day. All the time. No day goes exactly and perfectly according to my plan. Never. It never has. It never will. But here is Jesus saying to his disciples, go in, you will find a cult. And that cult belongs to me. You see, he's sovereign God. It's not just that he can see far away and Wow, this is an incredible superpower. No, it's that even though enrobed in human flesh, he knows all things and he's, he's upholding all things by his word and power. You realize that? This is sovereign God. This is the sovereign God who is upholding all things by his word and power. And so he says, there is a cult. Go and get it. And if anyone comes to you, you tell them the master, the Lord has need of it. And so they do. He enters into that city perfectly in time and perfectly in tune with all the complexity of the word of God and of all the complexity of prophecy, the many hundreds, if not thousands of prophecies about how he would enter into Jerusalem. And he fulfills them all perfectly to a T. What did he say? I have come to fulfill my father's will. And he has said not a jot nor a tittle of all that God as commanded, will fall away of his law, of his word. Ever since chapter 16, in Peter's confession in chapter 16, he has been declaring the urgency of his visit to Jerusalem and the significance of that visit. He's directing these events. He is, he's been walking, but now he'll ride into Jerusalem according to his own directives, his predetermined counsel and plan, what has been perfectly promised he comes in accord with Scripture, with prophecy, with the Father's will. He's controlling all the natural impulses of this young, unridden donkey. It doesn't buck him at any time. He simply sits upon it. It obeys him perfectly. Why? Well, it's not because he was a particularly good donkey. It's because his Savior. It was because the, the Savior... It was because the Messiah, is because his creator sat on his back and commanded him or her to go according to what he intended. And if the crowd is silent, the rocks will obey his voice and burst forth in spontaneous praise. This is the sovereign God. This is his creation. Those are his stones. This is his donkey colt. 
And like the owners of that young colt, we ought to yield our lives and resources as he calls us and, and be willing to give ourselves away to him and serve him faithfully day by day, week by week. Second thing, he is humble. He is humble. The confession, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what, what was the state of Christ's humiliation? What was the estate of Christ's humiliation? The answer is, the estate of Christ's humiliation was that, that low condition wherein for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon himself the form of a servant. In his conception and birth, life and death, and after his death, until his resurrection, we serve a humble Savior. It's extraordinary that we, are, we excel so well at pride, human pride. All of us are full of it. Every last one of us is full of pride, personal pride. Just watch how quickly we respond to perceived threats or perceived infractions or perceived insults. See how quickly we get hurt. Luther referred to Jesus as a poor beggar king, a poor beggar king. You know, there's a wonderful contrast. If we look in Revelation we see Jesus coming in the 19th chapter and he comes on the back of a, a great horse and he's called faithful and true and all heaven erupts with hallelujah. They realize that the new time, the time for the new Jerusalem is near and a true wedding is about to take place between the bride of Christ, the church, you, you and me, and Christ betrothed for all time and forever. Babylon has crumbled, the Lamb has come and He's riding a horse, a magnificent horse, a, a manly horse as it should be. And, <clears throat> and we think, well, that's how Jesus should enter this city, Jerusalem. But no, he enters humbly as a, on a donkey. He is a beggar king. He makes of himself no reputation who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And he did so for a purpose. If you will, hear Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your weary souls. Jesus came not as a show to, to somehow put this, I don't know, some theater or dra dramatic presentation. He did this on purpose. He wants you and he wants me to know that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And he has humbly submitted to the will of the Father. And he has embraced death. If, if we are not convinced that Jesus Christ loves us, look for a moment this morning at Jesus on the back of that colt. And ask yourself, does Jesus love me enough? <clears throat> he has given himself for you, and he has done so with humility. Should we not also walk in humility with him and humbly accept him as our king and be willing to do anything for him? Thirdly and finally, he is worshipped and we must worship him. He has faithfully kept all that the covenant of redemption is required of him. He has fulfilled all that the covenant of grace 
could ever require of us. He has kept the Father's will. He is a righteous king. He has completed his service to the Father with absolute and perfect righteousness. Do you remember Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 9, verse 9? Behold, your king is coming to you. Verse 38 of our present chapter, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah's prophecy, Behold, your king is coming to you. As Americans, we understand in our colonial mindset, we don't serve that king or queen over in Great Britain. We know that. We also don't serve ultimately as the first place of our citizenship, the place of primacy here in America, our own president or any other elected leader for that matter. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We belong to Him. He is our King. We are His people. And He is a King who comes to serve the best interests of His people. He's not like any of that. He's not like, and, and I, I like her. I think she served well, Queen Elizabeth. She's a resplendent figure. But she's all about who she is. She is mostly a figurehead. And she protects her family and preserves their reputations, even though most of them are really screwed up. (laughs) Jesus is the King of Kings, one who does not go out on vacation on the weekend, nor does he take time off, nor is he a failure in his policies nor is he self-serving in any way. And I'm not complaining against any one person at all. I'm speaking in general about the, the reality that elected leaders all over this world serve themselves. There is an arrogance in wanting to be president, king, despot in any sort, representative, senator, you name it. There's, there's an arrogance about it. There is, isn't there? I think that I could serve the best interests of the people who would elect me. Well, who are you? Who says you can do better than anyone else? I think there are some who serve with pure motives, but but not many. We have a king who serves the best interests of his people, who does not think of himself. He did not count it an ungodly thing to consider himself equal with God. He is God. He's the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And He laid aside His glory for you, for me. We should have no question about this. He serves my interests better than I can. He takes care of me better than I ever have. He loves me Better than I love myself, and I already do love myself. There's some nonsensical sentiment that is bantered around in the church, the necessity of loving ourselves. No, love the Lord Jesus Christ, and hope and pray, and ask Him to love you, and to love you eternally, and He will. That's better than anything. To be frank, you'll never love yourself properly until you do, in fact, love the Lord Jesus Christ 
more than you love yourself. He serves the best interests of his people. On his heart, we are always and continually. He lives at the center of his people's communal life. He says to his people, wherever you are gathered in my name, I'm there. I'm there week after week. I'm there day after day. I'm always there. Nothing can separate you from my love. He watches over us continually. He is perfectly in tune with our needs. He is always available for wise counsel. He's always conquering his people's enemies and he's always maintaining our safety and preserving us whole, redressing our wrongs, giving us justice. He is our king and our sovereign. He is the king of kings, lord of lords, and he will save all who believe in him. Let the hosannas ring from our lips. Let us praise his great name. Let us stop complaining and grumbling against the Lord. And hold Jesus before our eyes. And marvel at his goodness and his love. And extraordinarily proclaim he is our king. He's the king of kings. Lord of lords. Hosanna in the highest places. Praise be to God. The God who walks amongst his people. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we give thanks to you for your word. We delight in what your word says of Jesus Christ. He is our Savior and there is no other. His name is worthy to be proclaimed in all the earth. He is glorious in his countenance. He is glorious in his work of salvation. He is glorious in the ways in which He cares for us. Hosanna in the highest. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. 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 In Jesus' name, Amen.